Hello and welcome to another episode of the Brothers F. I'm Juan Carlos. We got a great episode today with all the brothers on it. We're going to be talking about the Overcoat, which is uh, an 1842 short story by the Russian author Nikolai Gogol. And I got a couple of good quotes here lined up just to get you hooked, you the listener, hooked right from the right from the get go. One of the one of the uh, the uh, the great writers from Russia in the 19th century, he said he's quoted as saying, "This is this is Wikipedia tells us this is misattributed to Dostoevsky, but it's it's a different writer." He's quoted as saying, "We all come out from Gogol's overcoat." And then a hundred years later, in 1941, Vladimir Nabokov, who uh, was probably the greatest Russian writer from the 20th century, he called it the greatest Russian short story ever written. So strong, pay, strong praise right off the bat. I thought uh, we could just jump in. First impressions, guys. Okay, I, I don't get that at all. The the greatest short story ever written. There's there's got to be a lot that I just completely did not understand when I was reading this. Then. So you thought it was not that special? I I thought it was good. It was a fun read, but again, yeah, not that special. Yeah, from what I can tell, it's sort of Vladimir Nabokov's thing to say sort of abstruse, hyper-intellectualized things. Um, so, like, this but, is how they signal how in they are to each other, is, like, how much joy they pretend to get from, from Google. No, I don't think it's pretending. I think he's very smart, but I think, uh, yeah, it's, like, you're not going to see eye to the eye. I mean, this is a guy who wrote Lolita, right? So he's clearly got some... yeah. <laughs> Aesthetic, uh, aesthetic preferences. Okay, well, I was thinking this. I was thinking it's we we were not going to explain Lolita to you, Juan Pablo. Uh, <laughs> extremely, extremely inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know they, what they call Jeffrey Epstein's plane. That's right. That's right. It's a book about a man who has a sexual relationship with a girl who's who's like twelve years old. He stepped yeah, that wasn't what they called Yeah, the Lolita Express. All right, that's and what he I, called I, it. All right, yeah. moving away from this delightful. I've never, I've never, I've never, I've never read it. Never um, <laughs> anyways, uh, I I decided as a, as we were sitting down and getting this this set up that you know like Lord of the Rings when you have all these like really intense intelligent characters who know everything that's going on. But the story also needs to be explained to the dumb members of the audience. So they throw Pippin in there. So he can be like, but I don't understand what's going on. So everybody like says, oh, Pippin, you dumb dumb. Like, here's what's up. So right, I right, became right. the role of Pippin in today's podcast. Because I I mean, I enjoyed the story, but I can't say that I I saw many layers deep into what was going on. Oh, Andrew, you dumb dumb. Here's what's up. Thanks, Juan. Thank you. Thank you. Guys, is every podcast going to have a Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter reference? Oh, that's just who we are, Fran. <laughs> I think that would be a good goal. <laughs> that's a good goal. <laughs> fairness, it is a literature podcast, so we were kind of asking <laughs> yeah. for it. And plus, Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, those are kind of good good signposts for us, I feel. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Lord of the Rings, it's intense. It's hefty. Harry Potter, it's pure fun. And I think yeah. everything we read should Careful fall somewhere on that spectrum. Fun. Careful with pure fun on that. Okay, uh, so, it is fun. If Lord, so if Harry Potter is food, it's like fluff or like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Yes. And Lord of the Rings is like 
is like chicken parm. Substantial, good, like really, truly good, healthy even on many levels, but, you know, very, very approachable and appreciable by by the, the average audience member. Yeah, but chicken parm is Italian, and Lord of the Rings is decidedly not an Italian work of literature. Chicken parm is not Italian. Friend, I once met some Italians. I once met some Italians, and I explained chicken parm to, to them, and they recoiled in horror. They were like, "Why would you do that to to?" And they they said the actual name for eggplant parmesan or whatever it's called, you know. Um, so I don't think we can call it Italian. It's Italian. Careful what you're calling healthy. Chicken parm is not something I'd be going around calling healthy. Yeah. Cheese, pasta, covered, chicken covered in like breadcrumbs, covered in sauce. I'm saying that. What's that, Wanch? This is coming from a non-medical student to a medical student, but I'm gonna I'm gonna accuse you of some wishful thinking right there. I just think you have your carbs, you have your fat, you have your protein, you know. I think it's it's perfectly in balance. Delicious. Rice, carbs. Rice, Harry Potter, and Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, the goalpost, when we're named after the Brothers K, the Brothers Karamazov, which I, I think is out of that goalpost. I just haven't read the Brothers K, so. This Fair is great. All right, so the, the question I want to ask you all if. Uh, if Harry Potter is uh, a peanut butter and fluff sandwich, and Lord of the Rings is something uh, something more substantial like chicken parm or steak or something, what uh, what food or what food is is the overcoat? Oh, that's hard. That's a great question, Fran. Broccoli, hmm. maybe like oysters. Oysters. <laughs> yeah, you, you hear everybody being like, "Oh, they're so good. You have to try them." Right. You try them, you're like, okay, I can kind of see this, but like, also, really? Like, this is dude, what everybody was dude, dude, I love oysters, and I loved the overcoat. Okay, then maybe the, the, the comparison is apt. Uh, Mom has a great line about oysters, which is like, she looks at an oyster, and she's like, I just gotta think the first person who ever named an oyster must have been very hungry. That's true. That's true. I mean, they're so ugly. They look like a big, not to ruin oysters for anyone listening. They look like a big booger or like a big slug in a shell covered in seawater. Wow. Well, that's what they are. So, <laughs> um, I can eat them. I, in fact, like if I sort of squint, I can enjoy them too. But I certainly don't get like people being super into them, you know? Well, maybe, maybe I can jump in here because... For the listener, I actually, I don't know if you, my brothers, know this, but uh, I took a class on Russian literature my senior yes. year of college. Yes. Senior spring. Yes, Juancho, we know. And uh, and uh, it was a great class. It was taught by this professor. She was like, she had this insane knowledge of of all this stuff. And uh, it gave me some good context for the overcoat. So maybe maybe I can situate the overcoat. Maybe I should have done this last week. Maybe I can situate the overcoat for you all if you'll give me like a minute and 30 seconds or less. Um, the overcoat is Before a part... Before you situate the overcoat, can you situate what situate means to Situate, I mean, I'm going to place the overcoat in context and I'm going to explain kind of like what Gogol was contributing to, what sort of was already out there when he wrote this. Quampi, um, your question clearly indicates that you already knew what situate means. No, I actually didn't know what situate means, but if I could take the context, I want to get a... Firm, firm definition there. Maybe Huapi's Pippin. No, um, 
Andrew doesn't understand the story. I understand the story. I see the beauty in this story. Wow. Ouch. Okay. Okay. Um, so the overcoat is part of a, a, a broader tradition that we can call the Petersburg text. So there's two main cities in Imperial Russia, Moscow and, and uh, St. Petersburg. And, um, and Moscow is sort of like the older, more traditional city. Um, that's where, uh, you know, like there's a lot of sort of administrative work done in Moscow. St. Petersburg, it's closer to the West geographically, and it was also built by Peter the Great to be a kind of bridge to the West. So Petersburg is this very weird place that's kind of in between Russia and Europe, both geographically and also in terms of its culture. So that makes it weird. And the other thing that's really weird about Petersburg is that it's so far north in lat- in terms of its latitude, latitude, that uh, during the summer, the sun doesn't really set in Petersburg. It's not. I don't think it's quite above the Arctic Circle, but it's pretty close. So you get what are called over the summer, the white nights of, of Petersburg. And it's actually apparently extremely disorienting and unpleasant. Um, but things are kind of foggy and shimmery all night long during the summer. And it's never perfectly dark. And so you don't sleep well. And uh, there's all these sort of hallucinatory effects and such that are associated with Petersburg. So Petersburg is a really weird city. It's kind of a haunted city. And uh, and that's part of what I think Gogol is kind of capturing in the story. And as we all know that when people don't sleep, people get grouchy, right, Juancho? That's true. I mean, I, like every other person on the planet, am guilty yes. of that. Uh, yes. Of that. But anyway, so the Petersburg text is kind of a kind of a famous thing. So that's uh, that's part of the part of the background here. Wait, I don't get it. What's 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 your famous? It's LOL to Wumpy's comment, by the way. Um, like I get it, but is it like, like I get that it's placed in Saint Petersburg. What else adds on to that? Well, I think if you just, if you read the story, maybe going back and looking at the story and you sort of pick up on a few details. Like one thing I thought was cool, for example, another uh, great contribution to the Petersburg text is the novel Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. And in uh, in the novel by Dostoevsky, um, Raskolnikov is this character who's living in this extremely oppressive small apartment. He's a very poor student. And the description of the staircase at some point during crime and punishment is incredible. Like it's so cramped and it's like closing in on you. It's dark and it's stuffy and it's horrible. And uh, there was a similar description of a staircase in this, in this story. And Gogol wrote that it was a classic Petersburg staircase. So that makes me really want to go to St. Petersburg and check out the, check out the staircases. That's really cool. That's a lot of details that I knew nothing about. Um, anyways, after that very well thought out and educational uh, perspective, I will contribute a meme, which I think is apt also. I, I, I thought of it as soon as I was reading the story. Um, so not that these things ever translate well when you describe them, but I'm going to give it a go anyways, okay? It is four pictures. Uh, picture of Shakespeare where it says English literature, I will die for honor. That's what it says underneath Shakespeare's picture. Then French literature, another picture of some random French too. I will die for love. Then a third picture, American literature, Scott Hemingway, it says I will die for freedom. And a fourth picture, Russian literature has Dostoevsky, it just says I will die. Ah. <laughs> At Brothers F tweeted that out, FYI. 
Oh, yeah, dude, follow you, you, at you, Brothers F. You uh, you um, you use that meme in the uh, death of Ivan Ilyich episode. Oh, did I really? Oh, I'm doubling yeah. up. Wow, you're, double, you're you're double dipping on the meme. I'm a oh, that is a faux pas. Oh my goodness, I'm going senile. That's it. Twenty-four. Well, years. You're busy. You're busy. We'll let you off the hook. I actually hadn't heard that before, and I liked it a lot. So, uh, so yeah, it's dark. It's a it's a dark story. Maybe we should should we give a quick description of the story? Yeah. Sure. All right. Quick synopsis. There's this main character. He's a titular counselor, which is kind of a low level bureaucrat in Saint Petersburg. His name is Akaki Akakievich, which is a very funny name in Russian. Apparently, it translates roughly to something like John Johnson or something. So it's like the most sort of stock, outrageously sort of common name that you could pick. So it's sort of like uh, the everyman, you know, Akaki Akakievich, he's poor, he's a government clerk, and his job is just to copy documents in the Russian capital of St. Petersburg. He's extremely dedicated to the job. He loves copying. He'll copy in his free time. And, uh, and people give him extra things to copy all the time. They tease him, but he doesn't care. So long as he can copy, he's happy. He's around 50. He isn't married. He doesn't eat well. He doesn't look good. He, his, his uniform is super rumply. And uh, the only thing he lives for is copying. The key thing, or the, 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 the element of the story that sort of gives it his name, is, uh, is his coat. So he has this threadbare overcoat, which people often tease him for. You can almost see through the coat in places. He takes it to be fixed. The tailor tells him, look, I can't save this coat. You know, if I, he says, if I, if I were to put a patch on it, I couldn't, I couldn't attach the patch to any, any other part of it. You know, it's, it's all sort of like, uh, so completely falling apart. And Akaki, who's very frugal, he doesn't want to buy the new overcoat, even though the tailor tells him the only thing to do here is to buy a new coat. Finally, the tailor gets him on board. And Akaki, who makes very little money, he saves for three months. He's going hungry for six months. He's going hungry. He's not eating at night. He's not burning candles. He even forsakes some of his free time copying just to save up money for the overcoat. He finally buys this incredibly luxurious, beautiful coat. He goes to the tailor, he does all the shopping, uh, and the tailor puts the coat together. It's a beautiful coat. He comes into the office. Everyone's complimenting him for once. They're so impressed by this coat. He's on top of the world because he was living for this coat for six months. It's the first thing he's ever cared about besides his work. He goes to a party that night in the nicer part of town uh, which is to celebrate his uh, his coat. And on the way back, his coat gets stolen. And he cries out for help, but the policeman who was supposed to be on duty is asleep at the wheel. And uh, the coat is stolen. He goes home. He's he's completely, you know, devastated. And uh, he tries to make amends through the, the the justice system. He tries to get the coat back. Everybody fails him. He catches a cold. He dies. And then he comes back as a ghost. He haunts people by stealing their coats. And, uh, well, there's a tiny twist at the end of the story. Maybe I'll just leave that for the listener. But that's the overview. Very, uh, very, uh, you know, plain Jane. Uh, uh, you know, it's so Petersburgian, you know. That was my first thought. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Shut yeah. up. <laughs> Also, we don't really need to leave anything for the listener because if you're listening to the podcast, so I'll just go ahead and give the ending. He haunts, you know, the general who tormented him or the policeman who tormented him. 
and uh, and frightened and frightened frightens him terribly, and uh, then you know Akaki is no longer uh, seen again. Yeah, there's not much to spoil. I guess the only detail was that it was. I think I don't think Juan mentioned this. It was that the very guy who refused to listen to him, um, yeah, and there was there was actually there was a lot of fun delving into the psychology of the like major official who refused to listen to Akaki. Um, he was there. He had an old friend in town, and he wanted to look to this old friend as though he were the kind of person who could make other people wait for him. Um, so he makes Akaki wait outside for this inordinate amount of time just to sort of prove that he can do that to other people. Then Akaki comes in and he, he frightens Akaki. He's like, how dare you waste my time with this? I, I forget the exact details. And Akaki runs away frightened. And the guy feels really good about himself that he can frighten random other dudes. Um, it's this very same dude who is arguably res- some, I, I, maybe not responsible for Akaki's death, but did what eventually led to it. Um, it's this very dude who Akaki haunts and who Akaki steals his coat from um, at the very end. Yes, the guys referred to in the story, which it, Gogol uses very colorful language, I would say, and the epithet for this official is a certain prominent personage. So that's like, that's that's that tells you a lot about him. He, you know, he has a high position, but he also, he puffs himself up. It is very yeah. informative. When have you heard of a certain prominent personage? It's, it's very um, punctuate. Yeah. I would say the text, like the, the writing itself, is is playful. Would you guys say that's mm-hmm. fair? fair? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, I, I didn't pick up on that, but maybe that was the translation I was reading. Uh, but you know what? I, I did get really sucked in by this one. Because, like, you know... <laughs> It, the guy is such a sad sack, right? He's got this government job. You know, all he does is copy stuff. They try to give him more substantive work and he just can't handle it and he wants to go back to copying, right? He's short, he's bald, like he's unmarried, he's in his 50s, he's poor. Like he's a total sad sack. And and, you're, and my, my first reaction was like, it's really hard to care about this dude. But all of a sudden, because he's a sad sack and because he has this like you see his struggle and you see like him like scrimping and saving and not eating and not using candles and enduring. And he finally gets this coat and you know, you have to maybe suspend your disbelief, but all of a sudden the coat makes him a new man. And you're like, this dude's getting a win. And somehow I didn't see it coming. And when they stole that freaking coat, I was, it was really sad. I agree. Yeah. Pretty hard, but Brand, I would like to push back on that a little because there's this quote early on in the story, like less than 20% of the way through. So we're just kind of learning who Akaki is. And we learn that he indulges in no kind of diversion. And at the end of each day, uh, it says, no one could ever say that he had seen him at any kind of evening party. Having ridden to his heart's content, he lay down to sleep, smiling at the thought of the coming day of what God might send him to copy on the morrow. Thus flowed on the peaceful life of the man who with a salary of 400 rubles understood how to be content with his lot. So I kind of read the story differently. I felt like Akaki was pretty happy, right? Early on, even though everybody thought he was unhappy, he himself was perfectly happy. And then this need gets invented for him. He gets attached to it and then he gets crushed by it. So I didn't, I, I, uh, I had maybe kind of the opposite interpretation of you. 
Well, I'm not saying that he was, uh, you know, unhappy or happy with his life. I'm just saying that, like, my initial reaction to this dude is like, dude, this guy's like a hard life. Like, people are bouncing him at work. Like, he doesn't have any friends or a social life. And but when he's right, he likes that. You know, he's well, like okay I, with the situation. I mean, that maybe that's fine for him. But like, I was like not okay with it for him. Sure. <laughs> so objectively, objectively, it's tough. I, so I was, I was like looking at, it, I was like, this dude's getting a win. I was like, I was like, I was like, okay. And then, and then, you know, it, it deteriorates so fast from like stolen overcoat, and you're like, you know, I'm reading about it. I'm like, I'm kind of rooting for him to get the coat back, but I'm like, I already kind of know that he's not. And like, part of me already knew that he was going to die. Like that, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, see, I actually kind of, I, I agree with Fran. Like I, I, I did when I was reading it, kind of get a similar, uh, I guess I had a similar interpretation, like whether or not he liked his life, I did kind of feel bad for him because uh, the way Gogol describes it, you know, um, the type, the type of person who would like living that life, you know, is, is probably living a pretty solitary life. And like you said, he, he's 50, in his fifties, no, no wife, no, he lives alone and, and he just loves copying his, uh, it just loves copying the documents, but you know, even people at work are, you know, I feel bad for the type of person, um, even though he was, he's, he's, you know, obviously a, a, a cocky is very a simple person, but I, you do, you can't help but feel bad for the person who, I don't know, like, is like, that. just everyone at work is making fun of him. He's clearly disheveled. Um, I don't know, because Gogol goes out of his way to kind of describe him as such, right? So one can only, one can't, the only thing I could do was feel bad for him. And then exact same reaction that friend had when his overcoat was stolen, I was pretty heartbroken. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I, I totally get where you guys are coming from. But I think Wanch has an important point here that if he's totally happy, then like he's at a great uh, steady state at that point. And the overcoat does nothing but bring him sorrow. Like, if the tailor had just said, whatever, I'll put a patch on, and he persisted for a couple more years with the same coat, it would have been a couple more years of his very happy equilibrium of just go to work, do your copying, go home, have a cup of tea, go to bed. Um, and even though we from the outside are like, this is so lame, this guy just really needs something cool in his life, um, really... It brings nothing but sadness. Yeah, so, but it's it's interesting how like I, I I agree like I don't disagree, but it's just it's interesting how Gogol goes out of his way to describe Akaki so um just so like as such a disheveled person and and just like people making fun of him and and I, I get that he's so happy and he enjoys his job as it is he has no you know that. He's, he's content where he is, basically. He likes his life as it is. But with all the descriptions he gave, I couldn't help but feel bad for him. Okay, yeah, so, that's fair. I don't know if this is possible, but I kind of read it into read into it both ways. I know this is going to sound silly, but I did. I started off reading it like, wow, this guy lives such a miserable life, but then switched on to, wow, that guy's life was actually much better until he got the overcoat. Because I had a suspicion that the overcoat was going to ruin his life because it's a short story and they're talking about his life. So it's, his life's got to end soon and I doubt his life ends with his overcoat. So 
I switched off, and kind of both sides of my story were sad. It was kind of sad. So Huapi had the upper hand. Let me drop another quote on you guys. I want to put this out there and just get your thoughts. Because Gogol, um, he had some... He had he definitely had some mental mental health issues uh, throughout his life, and I think he was noted sort of for his instability in his writing. But um, but there's I mean there's a lot there. I think there's a lot there. But anyway, Nabokov, same guy, Vladimir Nabokov, this great literary critic, writing in his lectures on Russian literature, he gives the following appraisal of this very famous story. Steady Pushkin, matter-of-fact Tolstoy, restrained Chekhov have all had their moments of irrational insight, which simultaneously blurred the sentence and disclosed the secret meaning worth the sudden focal shift. But with Gogol, this shifting is the very basis of his art, so that whenever he tried to write in the round hand of literary tradition and to treat rational ideas in a logical way, he lost all trace of talent. When as in the immortal The Overcoat, he really let himself go and pottered on the brink of his private abyss. He became the greatest artist that Russia has yet produced. What do you, what do you think of that? Is Gogol crazy? Is the story crazy? Are we crazy for trying to pin down the story? Is it really that crazy? I mean, maybe for the time this was so out there, but by modern standards, not at all. So this feels like Nabokov just flexing on everybody again you know hmm maybe Andrew. dude dude there's historians with a coat thief zombie like that's that's it's weird not that weird i don't know that's, that's a it's little a, it's a little weird it's a little kooky but i mean it's a ghost story right yeah yeah i'm with you i enjoyed it i enjoyed it for all my uh dissing the story i think it was nice it was definitely worth the read I also got sucked in, but let me narrow the question a little, maybe. What about this thing that Nabokov describes, which I think there is something to, this sudden focal shift. So with Gogol, the shifting is the very basis of his art. And I think there is a lot to that, that Gogol jumps back and forth between the comic and the ludicrous to the tragic. And he does this very easily. So here's, here's a description. You start the story, it's written in this very casual, playful way, and he says, Oh, because this is what authors do. I have to tell you about this man. And I'm not going to tell you what department he's in because I don't want to get into trouble. Um, but uh, at some point, uh, his coworkers are making fun of them, are, are making fun of him, Akaki, that is. And then there's this very sudden shift. So like they're all, they're all making fun of him. It's very ridiculous. And then, uh, and then, and then Gogol writes, but if the joking became wholly unbearable, as when they jogged his hand and prevented his attending to his work, he would exclaim, leave me alone. Why do you insult me? And there was something strange in the words and the voice in which they were uttered. There was in it something which moved to pity, so much that one young man, a newcomer, who, taking pattern by the others, had permitted himself to make sport of Akaki, suddenly stopped short, as though all about him had undergone a transformation and presented itself in a different aspect. Some unseen force repelled him from the comrades whose acquaintance he had made, on the supposition that they were well-bred and polite men. Long afterwards, in his gayest moments, there occurred to his mind the little official with the bald forehead, with his heart-rending words, Leave me alone. Why do you insult me? In these moving words, other words resounded, I am thy brother. And the young man covered his face with his hand, and many a time afterwards, in the course of his life, 
shuddered at seeing how much inhumanity there is in man, how much savage coarseness is concealed beneath delicate, refined worldliness, and even, oh God, in that man whom the world acknowledges as honorable and noble. So I just think that's, I think that's pretty amazing passage, first off. And second off, I think it's cool because the same thing that happens for the man that everybody's joking around and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden he's taken aback by how serious things become. That's also what Gogol is doing to us, the reader. I, I would agree in that when I read this, I, uh, I was actually pretty attracted to the form, the style and the writing for sure. And, um, you know, obviously I, I didn't know that quote ahead of time. Well, not obviously, but I, I didn't. And, uh, now that you like, it, it makes sense to be honest. Um, I, I, I had actually, to be honest, to be completely forthright, had never really heard of Google before. And that mean either gauge. This kind of, uh, I, I know Andres kind of put it down at the beginning, but you know, I, I was, I was very impressed and I, I do see it. I do see him, um, like not so, like the writing was good, obviously, but obviously originally in Russian, more like the form, like exactly kind of what you described, Hunter, how he goes from like, you know, comic, um, from, you know, from just comic lightheartedness to seriousness and the transition is, you know, you, you don't even know what's happening. Yeah, and I, I actually did appreciate that. So, Pancho, I affirm, uh, I reaffirm what you stated. I am, very, I was very impressed by that. Well, that's great. Thank you for your affirmation, Gage. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and 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 this is another thing that goes back to the Petersburg text. Um, I mean, I should have gone back and looked through my notes for the class, but uh, but one of the things about Petersburg was that it was sort of like haunted. That there were these hallucinations buildings that you thought were there, but then when you got closer, they weren't there. Things sort of shimmering in this weird half light that happens during the nighttime in St. Petersburg. Uh, you know, it's obviously, it's, it, it might be haunted by ghosts or there's all this sort of like hallucinatory uh, quality to the city. And I feel like that's also something that's in the writing itself, which is pretty cool. I feel like something like you guys were talking about this earlier, like that sh- this short story really brings you in. I wanted to point out that on the Wikipedia page, it says under films, there's 13 different films on the overcoat. So there's got to be something to this because I don't think that many stories have 13. And then this is just some small short story by Nikolai Gogol. And um, there's 13 films on it. That's like, a great point. Like why, why, why the fuss? I'm not sure. Yeah. Like Russia released a stamp in 2009. Like uh, uh, you know, like uh, a national stamp, the way we have stamps here, um, a postage stamp, like depicting a man, you know, a bald man in an overcoat writing at his desk in commemoration of Google's life. So, so this story occupies a lot of headspace for a lot of Russians out there. Um, I guess I still don't really get why it's that important. I do get why. It's good. I, I I enjoyed the story. I never I never didn't enjoy the story. Um, but I just don't see why it'd be so momentous, you know? No, but Andrew, see here on the Wikipedia page, it's not only Russians making films. There's an Italian film. I'm pretty sure there's a French film. I think there's a British version. I, uh, there's one by Hugh O'Connor. I don't even know who that is, but I'm just making up British and French, but most of them I'd say aren't necessarily Russian. Yeah. Yeah. So it's something captivating about the story. 
So, Juanch, what's your your? Uh, it was your idea, and you're the one who took a class on the story. Do you have any interpretations, or like, what do you think? What do you think he's getting at? Like, and what's what's with the zombie ending? I don't I don't quite know what to make of that. Yeah, what is he getting at exactly? I think he might be kind of trolling us. That was one takeaway from the course. At one point, uh, we read something else by Gogol. And uh, I just found it very funny, straight up. Like I didn't, I didn't think there was anything super deep to it. And I said, and I said as much to my professor, and she said, "Well, then you're really getting it." So I think, I think it might be a mistake to try to like read way too much into it. Clearly, it's, I don't know. It does seem like a deep story. It does seem to sort of strike a very deep chord within a lot of people. Because, but no, I was saying, yeah, we read some, we read some other things by Google in the class. And one of the pieces is called The Nose. Maybe this, got, maybe this will help us understand Gogol. The Nose is a short story um, by Gogol where there's this bureaucrat who's extremely vain, who thinks he has a great nose. And he goes to the barber. The barber accidentally cuts his nose off. The bureaucrat doesn't notice. The barber puts the nose in a handkerchief. The barber's wife, who nags him tremendously, accidentally throws the handkerchief out and then the nose starts to walk around the city and this is a cause of great embarrassment for the bureaucrat who initially lost the official who initially lost the nose um so that's the story there have been some incredible adaptations for the stage of the nose and i recommend to you guys and to the listeners that you give this a quick google because you'll see google images of you know it takes a lot of creativity to stage this as a play. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I think it's done pretty successfully. So a story like that, in my opinion, that's just like completely absurd, right? Like, I mean, obviously there's, there's you know, ways to read into the nose and, and the, the vanity of the official. But, um, but I think you can also just take that at face value. And I think that might be what Google wants us to do. So maybe once you start taking it, a little bit more face value and you just kind of enjoy the text and enjoy the words that might be when you're really hitting hitting your stride my thinking as you described the nose to us once was that gogol sounds kind of like uh monty python back in the 1840s where they didn't have a lot of resources to resort to when they wanted their absurdist humor and this guy comes along talks about sentient noses that walk around the city and this just you know this just tickles them this is this is the best they got. Yeah, so there was a time in Russia when Gogol was banned, when these kinds of stories were banned. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, no, it's it's uh it's quite a history, but now of course they've come around and uh and he's he's uh a point of pride for the for the culture. But yeah, no, it's uh I think the nose is a good. There's, there's some good lessons there, and how we should engage the rest. Wait, of, wait. Why did the uh, rest of his writing, including this story? Uh, why, why did they ban the books or the the stories? Why did they ban Gogol? Let me actually look that up, and I will get back to you. How about we Google it? Very nice. Stealing Diego's why, why don't you guys? Uh, even worse. Make you guys make some make some other pleasant um, conversation. No, dude, I was like counting on you for like the big brained interpretation. Like you're the one who took the class, and you're like, yeah, just you know, it's what it is. Yeah, bring it home, Juancho. This is all on you. Come on, man, don't leave us hanging. This is a lot of pressure. I'm telling you, the way to bring it home is by just taking it 
as it is what it is, I think. I mean, there's more to it. There's more to it for sure. Um, let's see. It's okay. You don't have to Google it in real time. It's okay to just say you don't know. Okay, yeah. I don't know. I don't know why he was banned. But he's definitely been featured many times on Russian and Soviet postage stamps. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm mixing them up with someone else who was banned. So well, be, don't uh, be, with a grain of salt. Being banned is super good for your career. Like Being banned is great for your career. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I, I like, you know, if I were an author, I would totally want someone to ban me. Like, that's how you... No, you... No. I mean, if you want me to bring it home, I can, if, if, if really what you want is for me to use fancy words, I can tell you that Gogol is one of the first to use the techniques of surrealism and the grotesque in his works. I think there's some of the grotesque. So this is actually a cool thing is we talked cool about in class. Wikipedia? Yeah, it is. Okay. The, uh, the grotesque is when you get proportions wrong. Do you guys buy that? Um, uh, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I buy that. What do you what, like? Can you put some more meat on that? Sure. So, so, so when you see something and you say, "Oh, that's grotesque," it's because it takes something that's familiar and it distorts it in some really surprising or unusual way. So maybe it kind of uh, it stretches an image, but in a way that you wouldn't really expect. And and the the fact that at once it's you know there's some familiarity in, in the image but also it's it's pushed in this new direction that you didn't expect is very sort of unsettling and i think that's what the grotesque is about and i think there's a lot of the grotesque in gogol right uh that it's sort of strange and mysterious hideous ugly incongruous i would say maybe that's the best word is when things just don't don't quite uh don't quite fit uh, so I think, I think, uh, I think there's a lot of the grotesque in Google. I mean, obviously the nose that's like textbook grotesque, right? Because there's this humongous nose dressed in a full military uniform that's walking around. But what's grotesque about the overcoat? Maybe the, the zombie ending, the zombie ending is for sure grotesque, but I also think the sort of like intense fascination with the overcoat and like the very lush descriptions that he gives of it. And, uh, and I don't know the way the way that everything sort of hinges on the overcoat. That just seems like a little bit out of balance, and so so that's I think that's a, that's a big part of what makes things grotesque. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to English class us too much, which I feel like I've done already. But uh, maybe maybe as a takeaway, you know, this is a this is a story that you kind of have to English class a little bit. Like true, you know, I, you know it's like a super famous. Uh, short story by one of one of the greatest authors of all time you know it's, i think it's okay like we can uh we can we can do the uh the highbrow section of the multi-brow spectrum nice fair enough yeah so um any any final thoughts do you guys are you guys familiar with the the uh, so-called matthew principle the Matthew no. principle. I can't say I am. So it's taken from a line in in the Gospels, where and I'm going to paraphrase here because I don't have a chapter and verse on the tip of my tongue, but it's it's a principle in economics. Um, and it basically goes to he who has much, even more will be given, and to he who has little, even that which he has will be taken away. Ooh. And um, 
you know, I, th- I this is something that, uh, you know, people think applies in, in the real world and the economy, right? It's like, I, I think some rich person is purported to have said, uh, the first million is an accomplishment and the hundredth million is an in- inevitability. You know, so you, you have this guy who basically has nothing. And then, then he gets, uh, you know, the little that he has gets taken away. And it's one of, it's one of the, I think maybe that's why the story resonates with people, right? It's one of the harshest truths about life, but it's there, right? Like, you know, I think that's why it's good. I, th- I think I finally got it. I think that's why the story's good. You've got someone who's taken a lot of L's and he's finally getting a W and his little W gets snatched away and it kills him. Literally. Yes, yes. It literally, it literally kills him. And the, and I think the reason the story's good is that's, that's how life is. Like people who are precarious, people who have very little, their lives are always at the edge, right? You imagine, uh, you imagine the, I don't know, the single dad who, who's, you know, barely getting by, he's got a couple kids and then one of them gets cancer. Mm. that guy gets destroyed, right? Whereas someone who, with more resources, with more going for them, they can weather a lot more. But, you know, someone who's who's at the margin, someone who's got so little going for them, um, who is not a prominent personage, that person is so precarious that even a small crisis, even, even a small loss, like losing the overcoat, that can literally you know, destroy and kill them, right? The general can afford to lose an overcoat. He wouldn't even make a stink about it. He would just buy a new overcoat. Mm-hmm. This guy, you know, just a humble government employee with a very small salary, he dies because he, he gets this one little thing that he has taken away from him. And, you know, that's not really been... You know, I think it's been we've been fortunate, and that's not really been our truth for most of our lives. But it's the truth for so many people, right? So many people living paycheck to paycheck, and they're like just one illness or accident or crisis away from total destruction. And that's why that story's good, because it speaks to it speaks to how how uh, delicate, how fragile the human condition is. For the vast majority of people, I mean, there are far more people like like the protagonist in 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 a city like Saint Petersburg than there would be people like the prominent personage. True, right? That I mean, that I like that. That's why. That's what. That's why I liked it. That's why I thought it was good. That's why it hooked me. I like that. I think that's a good reading. I like the Matthew Principle, Fran. I think for me, if I had to describe what hooked me, it's just the language. The language is a pleasure. Um, there was another guy we read named Andre Bailey later on who, who also wrote like a, a novel that's important in, in, uh, in Russian literature. And he also wrote this like critical thing that we talked about a little bit. Remember, Gogol was 1842. So, or the overcoat was 1842. So it was like really a pretty revolutionary thing in terms of... Uh, it's, you know, sort of surrealism and it's modernism. And Bieli, he wrote this book in which he analyzed, it says here, he analyzed the colors prevalent in Gogol's work, depending on the period, 
his impressionistic use of verbs, the expressive discontinuity of his syntax, the complicated rhythmical patterns of his sentences, and many other secrets of his craft. So I think we're probably missing a lot of that because we're reading this in translation. But I think some of that still comes through and that makes it pretty enjoyable to read. It's just sort of like the actual process of reading it or almost uh, saying it out loud, I think, would be would be pleasurable. So that's why I like the story. But I like your reading as well, Fran. Yeah, I'm just I'm just explaining what what spoke to it about me. Why I was like, you know, I was I was like totally sucked in in a way that I I haven't been in, in a good while. Yeah. Well, maybe we can uh, maybe we can maybe we can read some more Gogol in the future. Yeah, I think so. I think you know, um, actually, um, George Saunders does does a has has a book called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. Yeah, seven Russian short stories and like explains why they're good and like explains sort of the craft of writing a little bit. So I, I think uh, I think we, we could uh, maybe maybe not do that book, but maybe we can pluck the stories from that book. And once we've done them, maybe we can we can do the Saunders book. That's cool. We like George Saunders. We do. Yes, this this uh, podcast uh to use an internet uh, phrase, stands George Saunders. Yeah, we stand George Saunders for sure. I've never heard that before. Yeah. Is George the 10th of December guy? Yes. yes. Okay. That's why that name sounds familiar. Yeah. Anyway, Diego, next next short story. What do we got on the slate? All righty. So um, this was kind of more on the highbrow end of the spectrum. So... To, uh, for next week, we're going to go a little more middle brow. Um, we're going to do Bernice Bob's Her Hair, a short story by F. Scott Fitzgerald. It's a little less than 20 pages, so Wumpy, you better do the reading. Um, and it should, make for some, it should make for some awesome, uh, awesome lighthearted banter and discussion. You know, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go from highbrow to medium brow, and then maybe, maybe someone can, can uh, recommend a lowbrow one for the week after. <clears throat> I think this Quampy not reading thing is very disrespectful. Well, well in it's fairness, well so. no, it's not well deserved. <laughs> yes, it is. Quampy, we're gonna bully you relentlessly. I know I'm the youngest and I deserve it, but I, I, I don't <laughs> hey, know. No, hey, hey, no, we're just we're just playing, you know. I mean, it's just no, no, no. this is like the moment uh, in the overcoat when they're teasing a cocky and then they realize, gosh, maybe we're pushing it too far. Yeah, we're maybe you got too far. This is the judgment zone. Welcome die. to the judgment zone. We should have like a little jingle for the judgment zone. Like, it is. <laughs> Welcome to the Judgment Zone. Yeah, that'd be great, actually. But speaking of which, guys, um, anyone have any uh, brilliant ideas for potential hate reads? Oh. Ooh. I think A Fault in Our Stars would be fun. <laughs> What's A Fault in Our Stars about? Jordan well, Sparks. It's, about, it's No, it's a book about two kids who get cancer and fall in love. And maybe I'm a monster, but I think that's kind of hilarious <laughs> and, and uh kids getting I, cancer uh, no no kids getting cancer who also fall in love Diego. that's the funny part and uh I you think- know what you know what i'm a sucker for i'm i'm starting so i finally got like an email and i'm getting these um these ads from saint jude 
and I'm a sucker for them. They've just got me crying. Oh, yeah, there. well, of course. If I, I mean, had money, I'd, like, be clicking to them. St. Jude's take... Children's Hospital. You heard it here first. Swampy's an easy, an easy, uh, easy to convince about charitable causes. Yeah, all these charities are going to start, like, pirating my <laughs> uh, name off. Yeah, that one. They're going to be, like, totally. ripping off my name. Uh, Fault in Our Stars, what else? What do you guys think we could hate read? Well, I mean, anything by, by Ayn, Ayn Rand that would be down for hate rating. Uh, yeah, but friend, that's like, that's like, that's like, Joe, like, oh, let's go on a fun run. And then you say, oh, yeah, let's just run like 45 miles. <laughs> and, and, and 1500 pages. Yeah, exactly. Who's Iron Man? Not to mention, books, not to she... mention, I disagree with that being a hate read. So Ooh. Ooh. maybe we can have a contentious read. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good, a love hate read. That's a good idea. No, contentious week. We're yeah. But anyway, for uh, for next week, stay tuned for Bernice Bob's O'Hare. And if you guys are listening to us, always feel free to send us your hate read recommendations and your regular recommendations too. That's true. We're always hungry for recommendations. So tweet us, thanks. add us on Instagram, add us on Facebook, um, and uh, and we will respond. Yes, we love interacting. So thanks, everyone. We'll, uh, I guess we'll call it there. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Brothers F. And we'll see you next week. Wait, this is Brothers guys, let's give them, uh, in addition to the social media and the uh, other stuff, let's give them the, uh, the pods email. It's uh, brothersfpod at gmail.com. So we welcome your feedback, hate read suggestions, hate mail, love mail. Um, Fan fan fiction. Yeah, whatever. Um, And uh, yeah, actually, like if you want to, uh, you know, I don't foresee this happening in the near future, but if you want to submit something to be uh, to be car talked, we're uh, we're game for that, too. Yes. And my autographs, I autograph pictures. All right. All right. And I charge $80 a picture. Let's call it. Okay. See you guys. Bye. Hey everyone, this is Swampy, and I just wanted to make sure that you subscribe to The Brothers F on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, if you have Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, make sure to follow us there too. See you next time on The Brothers F.